Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an update on efforts to hit back at Putin where it hurts by going after his money and that of his oligarchs who act as fronts for his money. Perhaps the sanctions in response to his brutal attack, wanton killing of women and children and destruction of Ukraine, are getting to him as the Russians appear to be interested in peace talks, although it may have more to do with how the Ukrainians have fought them to a standstill. Joining us to discuss the seizure of super yachts and mansions which are being liberated by Ukrainian activists in London is Casey Michelle, a journalist who writes about offshoring, kleptocracy and financial secrecy. He's a member of the Advisory Council for the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative and has contributed research pertaining to offshoring, illicit finance and foreign interference to the German Marshall Fund, the Human Rights Foundation and others. He's the author of the new book, American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History, and we will discuss his article at The Atlantic, How the West Undermines Its Own Sanctions, as well as another at Politico, Sanctioning Russian Oligarchs May Not Stop Putin, but it's still a huge deal. Then we'll take a deep dive into the Eurasian landmass now united as Russia and China celebrate their new alliance, which just before Putin invaded Ukraine had Xi Jinping extolling Putin, saying, quote, President Putin is the leader of a great country who is influential around the world. He is my best, most intimate friend. No matter what fluctuations there are in the international situation, China and Russia have always firmly taken the development of relations as a priority, and the two countries have also resolutely supported each other's core interests. Joining us to discuss the geopolitics of this new alignment and how the Ukraine war might impact it is Alfred McCoy, who holds the Harrington Chair in History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. The author of Policing America's Empire, the United States, the Philippines, and the rise of the surveillance state, and In the Shadows of the American Century, the Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power. His latest book just out is To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. We will discuss his article at Tom Dispatch, Geopolitics and the Ukraine War in a World on Fire, and another at The Nation, Russia and China Together at Last. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Casey Michelle, who's a journalist who's writing on offshore kleptocracy and financial secrecy, have appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, 
The Washington Post, Vox and New Republic and Politico magazine, among others. He's a member of the Advisory Council for the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative and has contributed research pertaining to offshoring, illicit finance and foreign interference to the German Marshall Fund, the Human Rights Foundation and others. He's the author of the new book, American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History. And he has an article at The Atlantic, How the West Undermines Its Own Sanctions, as well as another at Politico, Sanctioning Russian Oligarchs May Not Stop Putin, But It's Still a Huge Deal. Welcome to Background Briefing, Casey Michelle. Ian, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Casey. And I suppose in the midst of all of this sorrow and bloodshed and trauma that's going on in Ukraine, there was a little bit of levity, I suppose, in London where pro-Ukrainian activists seized a mansion belonging to Deripaska mm-hmm. on, in Belgrave Square. They seized the mansion and they want to turn it over to... Ukrainian refugees. It's, 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 it happens to be abandoned, of course. Yeah. So that seems like a, a little bit of justice. How, how, do, how does it strike you? Uh, sure, a little bit of justice. Certainly something that's drawing even more attention to how these oligarchs out of Russia as well as elsewhere have turned to places like London, places like the UK, and then also to places like the US and Canada for years to hide so much of their money, to offshore it effectively, to launder it into things like real estate in addition to things like private equity investments, hedge fund investments, uh, luxury goods, uh, high-end artwork, all, all of this. I mean, I, I um, it is a testament to those on the ground currently occupying Mr. Deripaska's house, his, his mega mansion uh, in London. I, um, it, it's quite the fortitude, and it's been one of these, again, in silver linings to, uh, to everything over the past few weeks. Again, Deripaska being a close Kremlin ally, sanctioned now by multiple Western uh, jurisdictions. I, I, I will say, Ian, even, even though that, that's getting the, the headlines, and rightfully so, I mean, it is, it is quite the spectacle to see this, again, mega mansion suddenly open to protesters who will hopefully open it to Ukrainian refugees. There's something that's even more important that's actually happening in London as, as we speak. Here, here, here we are in, in the middle of March. And that is in London, we are finally seeing legislation passed to do a couple different things. Uh, one, uh, 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 fund the actual shell company registries that they have in the UK. They, they do have a public registry, but it's been effectively underfunded and unenforced for years and years. It really kind of made a mockery of the entire idea of having a, a shell company registry. And then two, uh, they are now going to be creating a registry of property that is owned by offshore or financial secrecy vehicles, for, foreign-owned properties. These, these are two things that are happening literally as we speak in, in London right now that are going to be far more important in the long run than just squatting or, or seizing uh, one oligarch's asset. So again, that's fantastic. I'm so glad that's getting the headlines and certainly drawing more attention to all of these financial secrecy networks and, and the West role they're in. But beyond that, it's so important to actually get the policies implemented, the legislation passed that will prevent something like this from happening in the future. Well, they've been a little slow in the UK going after <laughs> yeah. the oligarchs, and there's been some justified criticism of that. But now, do you think this idea of liberating, as the, as the activists say, liberating property belonging to Russian oligarchs, is that going to spread? I mean, maybe some of these super yachts could be turned into hospital ships. I, Ian, I would love to see this spread. I mean, I think that there is this kind of cascading realization now, both in the capitals, in places like London and Washington, but even, even more broadly, that these 
offshore financial secrecy networks and financial secrecy vehicles that Western jurisdictions have provided for years and years, again, to any oligarch who came calling, whether, whether it's from Russia or, or elsewhere. You know, I think there's finally this realization that it's not just uh, uh, you know, looted wealth that belongs rightfully to the people of Russia or to the people of Ukraine or, or Kazakhstan or Azerbaijan, uh, and not just that it's uh, you know, coming to the U.S. or coming to the U.K. and doing things like driving up property prices for the rest of us. You know, I think there's finally this realization that there is this real national security threat now staring us in the face. I think folks are finally making those connections, again, in the capitals, in places like London and Washington, but, but again, more broadly as well, which, which is why I think we're going to see more and more pieces of uh, uh, certainly headlines about uh, folks going into these super yachts, going into these mansions, uh, you know, stealing the high-end artwork or, or requisitioning it or whatever terminology you'd like to use, uh, because all of these proceeds or all, all these uh, assets were, were purchased through ill-gotten gains, ill-gotten proceeds. Elsewhere. And again, this all has to translate as well into legislation. It has to translate into uh, the ending of anti-money laundering loopholes, the expansion of basic money laundering requirements. And these things have to happen in tandem. And I will say, Ian, it has been, you know, on the one hand, it's an absolute shame and stain on the West that it took this long to get here, that it took a, a war in the middle of Europe to get here. But there is, again, silver linings. And as far as I can tell, reasons for cautious optimism about the fact that we're finally waking up to these these threats, these offshore networks, and the national security concerns they're in that were really of our own making right here in the West. And again, I'm speaking with Casey Michelle, who's a journalist whose writings on offshoring, kleptocracy, and financial secrecy have appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Vox, The New Republican Politica magazine, among others. He's a member of the Advisory Council for the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative and has contributed research pertaining to offshoring, illicit finance, and foreign interference to the German Marshall Fund, the Human Rights Foundation, and others. And he's the author of the new book, American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History. And he has an article at The Atlantic, How the West Undermines Its Own Sanctions, as well as another at Politico, sanctioning Russian oligarchs may not stop Putin, but it's still a huge deal. So... In terms of going after the uh, Russian oligarchs, the offshore money, a lot of it is not just ill-gotten gains from Russian oligarchs who are regulated and work for Putin, but also a lot of that money is wealthy Americans and others uh, avoiding taxes along with corporations. So isn't that one of the reasons why we've been slow at dealing with this and dealing with the rubric or the trick that they all use, which is uh, disguising the beneficial owner. And that's what Delaware and South Dakota are all about, is setting up shell companies. So there is some legislation, I take it, working its way through the hill on the idea of finding out who the beneficial owner is of of these various luxury properties, etc. How's that going? Yeah, Ian, great question. I'll address the first part of that quickly because I do want to remind listeners that you know we're talking about these oligarchs, we're talking about these kleptocratic regimes, those that are profiting from access to political power uh, in places like Russia, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, or including you know other places like Pakistan or Malaysia or or Nigeria. I mean, these figures, these oligarchs, you know, they didn't create these offshoring systems. They didn't, they didn't come to places like the U.S. or places like the U.K. and go out of the way to create these systems themselves. I mean, these systems were, were in existence. These systems originally emerged, these anonymous shell companies, these offshore bank accounts, these anonymous trusts in places like South Dakota. They, they emerged to service uh, 
uh, wealthy Westerners, wealthy Americans, wealthy Brits that were looking to offshore their assets, looking to hide their assets from regulators, from tax authorities, from journalists. So again, these, these oligarchs and kleptocrats, they kind of, they took advantage of systems that were already in place. And then those in the U.S., those in the U.K. that are creating these systems were all too happy to take that money, anonymize that wealth, and offshore. Again, we're talking trillions of dollars at this point that is now in the global offshoring economy. But, but Ian, to, to, to your question, we have seen remarkable progress, really unprecedented progress, even before the war uh, in the U.S. in terms of finally realizing and addressing some of these threats. One of the, the biggest things was early last year, uh, the U.S. Congress uh, uh, passed a bill called the Corporate Transparency Act, which finally brings transparency into these shell companies formed in, in, in the U.S. Uh, now, that, that bill was, was passed on the 1st of, of January in 2021. We're, we're still waiting to see what the language is actually going to look like, any potential exemptions, any potential loopholes. But it is difficult to overstate just how important passing that bill was, because anonymous shell companies in the U.S., are really the bedrock of so many of these anonymous financial secrecy networks, these oligarchic networks that they, they use to hide and launder so much money across the U.S. and, and elsewhere. And, and, and since then, we've seen bill after bill after bill introduced to begin patching up other elements of the U.S.'s anti-money laundering uh, shortfalls and, and, um, and, and, and pitfalls. Um, some of those are still pushing forward. Some of those still need to be actually formally introduced. But it's very clear that the momentum is pushing in one direction. And, and that momentum is in... Uh, transparency for, again, shell companies, uh, trusts in places like South Dakota, uh, uh, real estate and, and, and hedge funds and private equity and luxury goods. And again, all these other industries that we know have been profiting from all of this oligarchic money coming in and, and using their, again, exemptions or loopholes to anonymize all that wealth, to strip it of any identifying information so that no one can actually track it back to the, to the oligarchs themselves. So, Ian, I guess what I'm saying is things are finally moving in the right direction because of the war we've seen in the last few weeks, we're only going to see an acceleration of that trend that was, that was already there, which is why I am cautiously optimistic about where things are going in this broader counter-kleptocracy fight. And in terms of your article at The Atlantic, Casey Michelle, how the West undermines its own sanctions, is there anything beyond uh, what you just discussed in terms of how we're shooting ourselves in the foot, in effect? Well, this gets back to, I think, the, the initial comment that I made in our conversation today, Ian, is that these sanctions are wonderful. I mean, I, I am fully on board with directly uh, uh, sanctioning as many of these specific oligarchs out of Russia or elsewhere as possible. We know how it disrupts their networks. We know how it upends their financial secrecy uh, efforts. Um, and the more of it, the better. The stronger they are, the more unified the Western response to that, the better it is. But we have to remember, we can't fool ourselves into thinking that these targeted sanctions are somehow some kind of panacea, some, some kind of uh, you know, silver bullet to end these oligarchic threats, these offshoring threats. They have to be paired with the kinds of policies that we've been talking about today, the end of anonymity for shell company formation, for real estate purchases, for trust formation, and on and on. Because as long as those provisions are still there, as long as you know, American lawyers and law firms can work with whichever clients they want to set up whatever offshoring services they want, as long as these oligarchs can be behind any kind of private equity investments that they want, as long as these policies are still in place and unaddressed. These oligarchs have workarounds regarding the sanctions. So the, the sanctions themselves, they are great and they should be expanded and strengthened, but they have to come in tandem with, they have to be paired with these other policy prescriptions that we've been talking about today. So in terms of the reputation washing and the extent that there's this wealth protection industry of lawyers uh, with these big white shoe law firms like Jones Day and many of them, they call them in the trade, white boys, 
have worked with Russian oligarchs, laundering their money and, and their reputations. And William Barr put a bunch of these people in the Justice Department, I might add, lawyers for oligarchs in key positions. Are they being purged, the white boys, the wealth protection industry? Is anybody going after them? Um, not that I have seen insofar as any new prosecutions have emerged in the past few weeks. And I mean, I, I, I will say we've seen a number of lobbying firms drop Russian and Kremlin-linked clients uh, in the past few weeks. Uh, that hasn't been total. It's too early to say whether or not that's actually a trend that will continue, but certainly something to, to watch for. But, you know, I, I think, Ian, you, you just mentioned this phenomenon of reputation laundering. And I know much of what we've been talking today, talking about today is pure money laundering, the transformation of dirty or illicit wealth into clean, legitimate wealth. But there is a component to that, a parallel reality within that, and that is the reputation laundering uh, a mechanism that you talk about, the transformation of these guys. And again, they're all guys, they're all, they're all men from oligarchs, from um, uh, uh, those who have links to organized crime or those who have links to the Kremlin into philanthropists, into moguls, into those who should have uh, the doors of the uh, you know, policymaking community in places like Washington and London open uh, to them. And I, I know, again, this is another phenomenon that requires far more policy and regulatory response that we will hopefully begin seeing out of Washington and London soon. I, I will say, though, Ian, you know, we started this conversation today talking about Oleg Deripaska and his mansion in London, right? And he's one of the most notorious Russian oligarchs, very close to President Putin, considered a key ally of President Putin. And I think one of the things I like to point to, to to highlight the magnitude of just how deeply these guys have sunk their teeth into the West is that Deripaska's key lobbyist, his, his, really in many ways his best friend in the West, including in the United States, especially in the U.S., was not some obscure law firm or was not some other you know, PR firm or, or, or other neighborhood. His, his key lobbyist in whitewashing his reputation, who he paid thousands of dollars to, was former presidential candidate Bob Dole. Uh, who, after after Dole left the Senate, became a, a lobbyist for a number of foreign regimes, including Oleg Deripaska, helping Mr. Deripaska get a visa to the United States and then do God knows what with it. So, again, just highlighting the kind of the rot that we have seen emanate from Washington that we're only just now beginning to deal with. Well, didn't Deripaska put an aluminum plant in Kentucky to, as a favor to Mitch McConnell? There were there was an investment via uh, uh, one of Deripaska's companies in a steel plant in Kentucky. Uh, it is unclear whether or not that was supposed to directly lift sanctions. He is still directly sanctioned by the United States, so he can't visit that plant. But again, this highlights, and I think you're exactly right to ask about it, because we know these oligarchs are investing not just in luxury condos or super yachts or again high end artwork. You know, the U.S. alone, to say nothing about the Western jurisdictions, has left it so wide open to investments across the board, whether it's in small towns, whether it's commercial real estate, whether it's steel plants and factories. I mean, we only have a tiny, tiny look into where these oligarchs have, have put their money and how they've constructed their, their networks. So you're exactly right to highlight that. It's not just about Manhattan or Miami or Malibu. I mean, they're going to places like Kentucky and building political favors and building investments to do God knows what with. And... Let's take a brief station break, and we'll be back continuing the conversation with Casey Michelle. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org, and we're continuing the conversation with Casey Michelle, a journalist who's writing on offshoring kleptocracy and financial secrecy, have appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Vox, and New Republic, and Politico magazines, among others. He's a member of the Advisory Council for the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative, and has contributed research pertaining to offshoring, illicit finance, and foreign interference to the German Marshall Fund, the Human Rights Foundation, and others. And he's the author of the new book, American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History. And he has an article at The Atlantic, How the West Undermines Its Own Sanctions, as well as another at Politico, Sanctioning Russian Oligarchs May Not Stop Putin, But It's Still a Huge Deal. So I'm interested, though, in the strategy behind this is not random. If you go back to the 80s, when the Soviet Union was going through its period of stagnation and beginning its collapse, there was a lot of money stolen from the uh, Russian treasury, Soviet treasury, I should say, by KGB figures. They parked it in Manhattan. A lot of it went into Trump real estate, something like 3,200 condos in Trump properties were paid for in cash through shell companies. A lot of money went through Trump's casinos in Atlantic City as well, a lot of dirty Russian money. They, During the, uh, the period of free Soviet Jewry, that whole movement uh, called the Jackson-Vanik Amendment on an arms control assault two deal, one of the things that the Russians did or the Soviets did was they dumped a lot of their criminals with allowing the, a lot of Russian Jews out, but many were just the Vori, the those tattooed gangsters who ended up in Brighton Beach. They became the cutout for the KGB to launder all of this stolen money. So before the Soviet Union collapsed, the KGB, uh, who always always ran the country at any rate, and are running it now under Putin, I might add, they created a bridgehead here in the United States with all this stolen money from the Soviet Treasury. So there was a purpose behind that, surely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think this points to the reality that this isn't something that happened overnight, right? This isn't something that these oligarchic figures, these organized crime figures woke up just a few years ago and realized that the U.S. or places like the U.K. or the EU were wide open. I mean, this has been going on for decades and decades. And I think this points to a broader reality that when we, we talk about offshore jurisdictions, we, we still have this idea that these are some you know, far-flung islands in the, the Caribbean or in the Mediterranean. Um that sure we should pay attention to theoretically, but you know they're their own countries, they're their own jurisdictions. We we should we you know we, we can't do too much about it, um, which misses really the forest for the trees. It misses the reality of this transformation in places like the United States that has spent decades transforming into the world's greatest offshore and financial secrecy haven. And again, you know you you know, you, you mentioned the the Russian organized crime figures and those who've raced into the U.S. not just in the past few years, but starting in the 1980s. Through the 90s, through the 2000s, and then even accelerating the 2010s, as uh, you know, broader national security concerns really been getting covered before. You know, this is something that has been going on for for years and years and years. And I, you know, I, I won't sit back and say that uh, you know President Yeltsin or you know eventually President Putin 
looks directly at New York City or looks directly at Trump's properties and said, this is where we're sending organized crime figures to have a beachhead to sink their teeth into uh, and, and create these links with them. What we know, though, is that a number of oligarchic figures certainly saw that opportunity. They saw the opportunity to create these, these beachheads, create these bridges between Russia and um, uh, you know, places like the U.S. in terms of both the private sector as well as policymaking circles and took full advantage of it because, again, of all of these rampant financial secrecy offerings that the U.S. has been providing to oligarchs and uh, uh, you know, criminal figures from around the world, again, not just out of Russia itself. And this is just it's, – it's, it's been going on for a long, long time, Ian, and it is an absolute shame that it took a war in the middle of Europe for us to finally wake up and realize that this is not something we should have been doing whatsoever. And we're only just beginning to realize uh, how wide, how deep. Uh, and how, frankly, disastrous these networks uh, have been and continue to be and will be until they're actually uprooted. Well, but there is some strategy behind where these oligarchs regulated by Putin make their investments here in the United States. Investments are made in think tanks that study U.S.-Russian policy. So that's Mm -hmm. pretty close to the bone. And there's other many examples of buying political influence. So it's not random. You know, for example, Robilyev, the guy, the the potash Mm -hmm, billionaire, mm -hmm. he sold a property down in Florida to Mm -hmm. Donald Trump for twice its value. In other words, he took a huge hit on it. But he he didn't do that for charitable reasons. He did that because they had influence over Trump. And guess what? Donald Trump became president of the United States. Yeah, That's yeah, not well, bad, yeah. having hooks into him, surely. <laughs> and and what did Trump say to Michael Cohen, his former lawyer, after the sale? What did he say? He said, the oligarchs are just fronts. That was his direct quote to Michael Cohen after the purchase. He understood who these oligarchs eventually reported to. He understood why these oligarchs were able to retain and then beyond that spend as much wealth as they could because they are not operating independently, because they are operating as effective foot soldiers, as effective proxies or henchmen for the big man in the Kremlin, for President Putin himself, as, again, beachheads, as bridge builders, as investors, strategic and otherwise, in places like the United States as well as uh, uh, elsewhere. And again, this is a reality that has been the case for years and years. It is an absolute disgrace that it took this long to wake up to the threats that these oligarchic financing networks pose. I mean, Ian, you mentioned a moment ago think tanks. You're, you're exactly right. It's, it's think tanks. It's, it's universities. It's other nonprofits. You know, as I write in my book, there was a I worked with another uh, researcher from George Washington University, uh, David Zaccone, a few years ago, two years ago now, and we created finally their first database of oligarchic linked donations to American nonprofits. And these aren't even the total number of oligarchs; these are just the oligarchs directly linked to the 2016 interference efforts. And what we found was there were hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to the most prestigious nonprofit institutes in the U.S., places like Harvard, places like uh, MoMA in, in New York, places like uh, uh, you know, Carnegie Hall, uh, also here in New York. And this is, these are the, you know, the cream of the crop of America's cultural institutes opening their doors to Russian oligarchic money. Um, they can do so because there are no anti-money laundering protocols for, uh, for think tanks. Uh, they don't need to check the source of any wealth. It's all internal uh, for them. Uh, but again, you're exactly right. It launders the reputation that opens the doors to policymaking circles, and we still don't have a clear idea of how that actually affected or slow-walked or upended American policy responses over the last few years. And I will say, just as a last point, um, you know, the, uh, one of America's 
uh, you know, most astute Russian observers and analysts, Fiona Hill, she had a, uh, an interview uh, a few weeks ago with the New York Times where she talked about uh, how in her conversations with other Russians who spoke with President Putin, President Putin's line was that the West has left itself wide open. Anybody can be bought off in places like the U.S. and the U.K. and the EU. And there's, there's no reason and, you know, that, that was President Putin's quote. And I, I will say on my end, there's no reason for him to have thought otherwise. We have left ourselves open for years and years and years, willing to sell out to any oligarch who came coming. And that is, I would imagine, part of why Putin underestimated the West's response to his invasion of, of Ukraine. He was sorely disappointed that perhaps not everybody could be bought off. Uh, and there is some backbone left in, in the West, but I certainly don't blame him for, uh, for thinking otherwise. Well, Casey, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Yeah, Ian, anytime. And again, I've been speaking with Casey Michelle, who's a journalist whose writings on offshore kleptocracy and financial secrecy have appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Vox, The New Republic, and Politico magazine, among others. He's a member of the Advisory Council for the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative and has contributed research pertaining to offshoring, illicit finance, and foreign interference to the German Marshall Fund, the Human Rights Foundation, and others. And he's the author of the new book, American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History. And he has an article at The Atlantic, How the West Undermines Its Own Sanctions, as well as another at Politico, Sanctioning Russian Oligarchs May Not Stop Putin, But It's Still a Huge Deal. We're going to take a brief station break and back taking a deep dive into the Eurasian landmass now united as Russia and China celebrate their new alliance, which just before Putin invaded Ukraine had Xi Jinping extolling Putin. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Alfred McCoy, who holds a Harrington Chair in History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the author of Policing America's Empire, The United States, the Philippines, and the Rise of the Surveillance State, and In the Shadows of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power. His latest book is To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. And he has an article at Tom Dispatch, Geopolitics and the Ukraine War in a World on Fire. And another at The Nation, Russia and China Together at Last. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alfred McCoy. Ian, thanks for having me on again. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, we've spoken before, Al, about the famous Victorian geographer, Sir Alfred McKinder, and the notion of the great Eurasian landmass with Russia and China merging, and as your article in the Nation says, Russia and China together at last, not without some problems right at the moment. I mean, there was a meeting a few days ago in Rome between the National Security Advisor, U.S. National Security Advisor and his Chinese counterpart, and apparently it was pretty testy. The, the Biden administration is letting intelligence out, indicating that the Russians reached out to the Chinese for military aid, for drones, etc. Since the war, Putin's war in Ukraine is not going well for him, and apparently the, maybe the Chinese entertained that possibility, but the U.S. obviously put them on notice. Do you see a friction developing here 
the longer that China has to support Russia and things don't go well for Biden, where do you think that will head? Do you think the Chinese will hedge in any way or will Xi Jinping stick by his buddy Vladimir? Well, <clears throat> there's two ways of, of doing an analysis of a, of a very fast-changing event. Um, that's not small. The, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is, is an enormous rupture in the world order. There's no question about that. The longer it drags on, the more complex and convoluted the conflict becomes, and uh, the, the, the ripples just widen and, and radiate ever outward from Ukraine, shaking up the world order. Okay, so it, this is not a small event, and, and it's complex, and so we have to be a little cautious. All right, but in essence, I think there's two ways of, of, of thinking about it. One is the way that the press doing their job does they treat the diplomacy and the military aspect of the war and that's going to have a lot of twists and turns uh and and some not just some short-term surprises but also some medium-term impacts on on the global order all right then there's the the second level the deeper level uh that you try and get to by the study of geopolitics and by the application of that victorian geographer sir halford mckinder and that's looking beneath the, the, the ever-changing diplomatic and military kerfuffles and try and see some long-term trend lines. In other words, that, if you will, diplomatic history proposes change and geography disposes the long-term impact of those historical and political events. And, you know, you mentioned Sir Halford McKinder, but... Uh, it's not just me writing in the nation dragging up this long-forgotten Victorian theorist. This is the driving theory behind both what Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping are thinking. Alfred McKinder is a, a name that is being much spoken of in Moscow and Beijing even as we speak. They have seminars on geopolitics. They read McKinder's theories. They try and apply it to the present. And essentially what they're arguing is that setting aside any short-term adversity from this bold move by Putin, the long-term geopolitical trends from this historic alliance between Moscow and Beijing is going to drive the future. And again, I'm speaking with Alfred McCoy, who holds a Harrington Chair in History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the author of Policing America's Empire, The United States, the Philippines, and the Rise of the Surveillance State, and In the Shadows of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power, his latest book is To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. And he has an article with Tom Dispatch, Geopolitics and the Ukraine War in a World on Fire, and another at the nation, Russia and China, together at last. But you also spend a lot of time in, in your article at the nation and at, at Tom Dispatch, suggesting, uh, talking about the history of this prickly history, to say the least, between the Soviet Union and China going back to Mao and Mao's visit to Stalin where he, Stalin had him sit in a cold, drafty dacha for 17 days, twiddling his thumbs, getting in furious, and finally when they decided to have a discussion, all that Stalin offered was uh, he wanted the Chinese to build a pineapple factory because he liked canned pineapple. And, of course, Stalin had Mao's brother murdered. And then in '68, the Soviets deployed a huge army on China's border. And prior to the Chinese nuclear test, the um, 
Russians reached out to the United States and suggested, would it be okay if we preemptively bombed the Lopnor Chinese nuclear test site? So what's the glue holding this current reincarnation of the Russia-China compact? Is it just the two men, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, or is there some deeper tie here? Well, the deeper tie, okay? Let me write the history of the the last, oh, 70 years, uh, borrowing Sir Halford McKinder's theory, okay? So what, it, what, what McKinder said was, for a thousand years, roughly from 400 A.D. to 1400 A.D., the the landsmen, the the various hordes, uh, exemplified by the Mongols, riding out of the steppes of Asia, battered Europe and swept across Europe in succession. And so the landsmen, because of their mobility as horsemen, were dominant on the Eurasian landmass. Then came the age of exploration. The Europeans developed the sailing ship uh, and uh, they invented modern navigation techniques and that allowed them to sail around the Eurasian landmass and that made them dominant they could dominate Eurasia from the seas and he said then writing in 1904 he said now this is all changing because the construction of the Trans-Siberian Railway running for 5,700 miles from Moscow to Vladivostok increases the mobility across that landmass and so we're now entering a third great period in history in which the the Eurasian landmass will be dominant in what he called the pivot region, okay, the the center of of Eurasia, will be the the key zone that shapes world history. And Mackinder then said that for this to operationalize, for this, this, this geography to operationalize, to translate itself into political power, that meant that Russia would have to ally with another great land power like Germany. And, of course, when they did at the start of World War II, that shook up the world. And when Stalin and Hitler broke, that led to Germany's defeat. Okay, so so the key, Mackinder said, is that Russia, with this enormous landmass, needs another major ally on the Eurasian landmass. Well, in Mackinder's era, China was a semi-colony of Britain, an informal colony of Britain. So... He didn't think of China as a power. Well, okay, so flash forward to the end of World War II, and China becomes a power. And so that becomes that alternative land power, which in conjunction with Russia can dominate Eurasia. And according to Mackinder, if you dominate Eurasia, you dominate the world. And indeed, what you were just talking about, when Joseph Stalin, the leader of the Soviet Union, forged an alliance with Mao Zedong, who established the People's Republic in October 1949, when they established that alliance right away, that shook the world. That was arguably the single most important event in world history uh, in the latter half of the 20th century. Because the whole Cold War at that point was being fought as kind of a regional conflict with the Iron Curtain drawn down the the middle of of Europe from Norway all the way down to Greece, and the, the, what became the Warsaw Pact and the NATO Pact troops aligned on either side of the, the Iron Curtain. So it was kind of a, a regional conflict with, you know, some global tensions, but basically a regional conflict. Well, once the uh, Mao established the People's Republic of China and allied with Russia, suddenly that became a, 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 a global conflict. The whole of Eurasia was involved. And the United States scrambled. We had to amplify our 
defense budget many-fold. We fought the Korean War, and more importantly, we forged a series of four alliances, mutual defense pacts in 1951 and 53, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, and Australia, running down that Pacific littoral, and we occupied then that, that island chain from Japan down to Australia, and we turned that into the fulcrum for the U.S. exercise of global power. That island chain became the means for the United States to defend one contra, uh, continent, uh, North America, and dominate another, Eurasia. And then we, we between the NATO alliance and the West is our, is our sort of geopolitical ankle in the west of Eurasia, along with these four mutual defense pacts along the Pacific littoral in the eastern ankle of Eurasia, we then joined them together with these chains of steel, uh, three naval fleets ultimately, hundreds of military bases, um, mutual defense pacts, NATO, CENTO, CETO, ANZUS, and, you know, and then the four uh, mutual defense pacts I just mentioned with Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, Australia. Okay, and, and that was the apparatus of U.S. global power. And we contained um, the Sino-Soviet bloc behind that for a decade. And then when they split apart, as you just mentioned, in the 1960s, because of those resentments that Mao harbored towards the Russians, when, when, when that split apart, that effectively kind of isolated Russia, or the Soviet Union, on the Eurasian landmass, gave us a kind of geopolitical wedge between the two. And, you know, ultimately the Soviet Empire broke up and we won the, the Cold War and we moved from, you know, kind of a, a neutral position towards China to kind of an ad hoc alliance that started in the 1980s in the last decade of the Cold War began warming up. And then, you know, uh, China, we let China into World Trade Organization in 2001 and we formed this, the current economic partnership with China. And so if you, if you write the, the history of the last 70 or 80 years, it all revolves around the shifting relationship between Russia and China on the Eurasian landmass. So then when, you know, last month at the Winter Olympics in Beijing, when Putin turns up as a supplicant, just as Mao had been a supplicant in Moscow, now Putin is the supplicant in Beijing and, 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 and Xi Jinping and Putin formed this this alliance that's as close, arguably, and deeper and more soundly grounded, arguably, than the old Mao-Stalin alliance. And that then, that then shakes up the geopolitics of Eurasia and, by implication, the geopolitics of the world. And, you know, you can say, you know, okay, uh, uh, let's look for analogies. Okay, so, so back, right after the, 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 the Mao-Stalin alliance was formed, in January 1950, right? Nine months later, Chinese troops crossed the Yalu River into North Korea to fight the U.S. forces and join the Korean War. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> Stalin, uh, Stalin got this very handy Chinese surrogate. There were over 200,000 troops who were killed. The war took about 40% of China's budget at a time when it desperately needed that budget for national reconstruction and development. Um, and so, you know, uh, so Russia got kind of a surrogate to push out and strain the Western alliance. Well, now think about it this way, you know. It kind of, you know, it, it, by the way, the Korean War it, it didn't do China a whole lot of good. I mean, it allowed the North Korea to be reestablished. It was at risk of being erased before China intervened. Okay, so China got something geopolitically, but not a great deal. They paid a heavy price for that. Well, you can look at the 
Russian invasion of Ukraine kind of the same way. Not not going not going particularly well will entail a lot of casualties, um, but China is going to play it skillfully like Stalin played the Korean War, in order to weaken the Western alliance and give it room for maneuver. And so, you know, we'll see if if the geopolitical theory is right, this underlying strength of the uh, of the alliance between these two great powers on Eurasia will shape the overall direction of world politics in their favor and allow them to compensate for tactical errors they might make along the way, just because the long-term trajectory is running so strongly in their favor. But you don't think that there could be a backlash to a overt alliance over Ukraine between Russia and China, and China bailing Russia out with drones and whatever else Putin is asking Xi Jinping for, there is an outrage across the West and in the United States as we watch television and watch helplessly as Ukrainians are slaughtered, civilians are murdered. This is not going to play well for China, and doesn't China have a lot to lose in terms of brand China? There's obviously severe sanctions now against Russia, but could sanctions eventually be extended to China if it becomes too close to Russia in this war? Potentially, uh, whatever aid they give, um, they're going to give as covertly as possible. Um, uh, you know, financial transfers are, are difficult to, to document. Uh, increasing flows of gas and oil through pipelines, again, difficult to document. Um, you know, uh, the, uh, let, me, let me again go back to the comparison, all right? When you look at, you know, you mentioned the pineapple canning factory, right? The, the, in other words, way back in the early 1950s, when Mao and Stalin forged that alliance, it didn't have much of a substantial economic foundation. China was ravaged. It was years behind economically, decades behind economically. It, need, it needed Soviet transfers of technology, which it got. Uh, during a decade of, of massive Soviet economic aid to China, for which China paid a very heavy price, uh, they had to pay for a lot of their a lot of the aid they received in dollars and gold, which were hard to come by for a, a Chinese socialist economy. Anyway, uh, so it was a weak foundation. But today, it's the 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 alliance between Russia and China rests on extraordinarily strong foundations. They've inter they're interlinking, and they've already interlinked. The uh, oil and gas pipelines uh, in the eastern half of Russia basically service the Chinese market. Uh, China's booming economy has insatiable energy needs. Uh, Russia has, you know, that petroleum products are its primary export. And so, in effect, Russia's exports and China's uh, growing industrial economy, they need each other. And they're, they, one of the things that happened at that meeting last month in February, they talked about, you know, they they had these these grand statements about a a changing world order, um, the need for a new form of global governance, and they kept coming back to the statement that the foundation uh, for their alliance in shaping this emerging world order, this new form of global governance, was their oil and gas development and and their shared oil and gas uh, production and consumption. So it's an alliance that's, that's grounded, I think, you know, in, in real mutual interest. You know, Russia's um, uh, prime 
export and China's prime import, you know, they're they're going to be integrated. And that's a very strong foundation. And it's also not ephemeral because, you know, the transfer of oil and, and gasoline is done through pipelines, which cost many billions of dollars to build. And, and they are literally in an infrastructure grid uh, that just can't change will-o'-the-wisp. It's not like sending uh, container ships from one to one port instead of another. You lay down a grid and you live with it. And we're continuing the conversation with Alfred McCoy, who holds a Harrington Chair in History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the author of Policing America's Empire, The United States, the Philippines, and the Rise of the Surveillance States, and In the Shadows of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power. His latest book is To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. And he has an article at Tom Dispatch, Geopolitics and the Ukraine War in a World on Fire, and another at The Nation, Russia and China Together at Last. So let's talk further then, Al, about the possibility, which we know what China and Russia would like to get out from under. I mean, the one thing that Russia is vulnerable now is the U.S. financial power, that the Treasury arguably has more power in a way than the Pentagon. It's obviously not kinetic like the Pentagon's power, but freezing assets and sanctioning oligarchs is clearly hurting Putin and the Russian ruble is tanked and the economy's in free fall and they're really in big trouble. They'd like to get out from under the Western influence and so would China. So what's the chance uh, now? I think the yuan is going up, isn't it, in value? Uh, I haven't looked. Uh, yeah. Well, but in other words, can they get around the U.S. currency-based global situation now where the U.S. is the reserve currency? and? The relationship that you just mentioned with pipelines and Russian exports of oil and China's demand for energy being a win-win for the two countries, it's a loss for the world in terms of global warming. Um, That's another subject we can certainly talk about, Al. But in, in general, do you see the economic alliance expanding further into China and Russia challenging the global control of trade, et cetera, through the dollar? Yeah. Um, and my, again, international finance is not one of my strengths, but my sort of, from from the perspective of imperial power, um, there, there are two key aspects of, of uh, international finance and the way it intersects with, with international power. One is the, the actual global reserve currency, uh, the IMF has a basket of currency that it uses, and it, um, I think in 2015 there was a dramatic announcement by then um, Lagarde, who uh, was the head of Christine Lagarde, who was the head of the uh, of the IMF at that point, and she announced that the Chinese currency would be joining the basket of currencies for the first time, and so it's basically the yen, the euro, the dollar, uh, and the Chinese yuan or renminbi. And over time, we can expect the dollar share in that basket to decline so that it stops being you know, the absolute global reserve currency. The other aspect of financial power, which is related to the dollar but somewhat independent from it, is the actual organization of the international financial system, You know where the major banks lie, what the networks are for the transfer of currency, like the SWIFT you know, the transfer of currency and, and, and reactions, the, the SWIFT network, as it's called. And that is, that is still very much U.S. and European dominate, dominated. And so the dollar may decline, but the international financial system is still 
grounded in U.S. banks, U.S. institutions, and the U.S. Treasury has a capacity to put the squeeze on that. And uh, so far, there has been no financial center. Hong Kong, arguably, but it's being compromised. Its future is not quite clear. But so far, in that in that, that Russian Chinese block, you know, they are very much dependent on on the London, New York, European-based financial system, right? And and that's why we can you know put the squeeze on the oligarchs, and and that's why the ruble is tanking. But to also think a little bit, you know, uh, beyond just the financial aspects and come back to some of the points you're making earlier, you know, the, the price that Russia and China could pay for this operation. So even if we take the geopolitical perspective, that this alliance between these, these, between these two great land powers on the Eurasian landmass, in line with Sir Halford McKinder's theory, means that long-term geopolitical trends are favoring these Eurasian powers, okay? Uh, but then again, uh, so what's going to happen in the medium term? Well, China's strategy is, is twofold. Uh, one, they've been laying down a, a grid of rails and pipelines across the, the whole of Eurasia to kind of bridge between the natural division of that sort of empty center that historically made Eurasia into two continents, Europe and Asia, tying them together by this grid of pipelines that is an infrastructure of steel right across the, the Eurasian landmass, almost from the North Sea to the South China Sea. That's one aspect of China's strategy. And that's one that, that's likely to expand because basically that, that pipeline network runs through Russia and China and, and, and Central Asian states that are beholden to both Russia and China. So that, that's going to actually grow. And I expect that as Europe tries to wean itself from Russia's energy, that China will be more than able and willing to fill the gap. Right? But then there's another aspect of China's strategy. They built a, uh, a string of ports around the other aspect of Sir Halford McKinsey's theory. He said that when you look at the map and you look at Europe, Asia, and Africa, you don't see three continents. He said if you view it correctly, you see a unitary landmass that he called the World Island. And that's what, that's what he said. He who controls East Europe controls the heartland of, of Eurasia, and he who controls the heartland of Asia controls the, the World Island. He who controls the World Island controls the world. And that's that slogan is being off-repeated in Beijing and Moscow these days. Okay. So the other half is that, that, that the coastline of that World Island. And in order to dominate that, China has built in recent years through loans and development and purchases of, of, of shipping uh, of, of you know, port facility companies. They've acquired functional control of 40 major ports ringing the coasts of Asia, around the coast of Africa, and then all the way around the coast of Europe. And then they built kind of transit corridors from their southern European ports up into the heartland of, of Europe. Uh, so uh, a year or so, two years ago now, uh, Xi Jinping made a visit to Italy, uh, and uh, Italy joined the Belt, China's big Belt and Road Development Initiative, becoming the first G7 country to do so. And then China got special lease arrangements on two ports, one in Genoa and the other at Trieste, because they have good corridors into Western and Central Europe. <laughs> now, as a part of this strategy, China has also cultivated 
a special group of developing nations in Eastern Europe. And since 2019, Ukraine's main trading partner has not been Russia, but it's been China. So China has been very um, aggressive in building infrastructure and putting in investments in Eastern Europe. And this, in a medium term, could suffer some damage and, and, and weaken China's influence in Europe and weaken China's strategy of sort of pulling Europe away from the United States and making it a more independent, China-friendly power. Uh, China was on the edge of signing a major uh, financial services agreement. They, they actually signed the preliminary documents, but that's not likely to go forward under the current circumstances. And that financial service agreement would have created a kind of a fuller integration of China and Europe's banking systems and weaken that that U.S.-dominated financial services system I talked about just a minute ago. So, so China and Russia, are going to, particularly China, they're going to take some hits in the medium term. But I think their strategy is that the long-term geopolitics, as defined by Sir Halford Mackinder back in 1904, that those are going their way, that their ultimate trend line is positive. They are on the ascent. The U.S., in particular, is a fading, corrupt civilization, a, a, a waning imperial power, and they will transcend and surpass us. Well, just to touch on the, um, I mentioned earlier about the power of the dollar in terms of a global reserve currency and in dominating trade. The one Chinese one is up, but it's been down for a while. But it's just jumped up to a, a high uh, recently, following a report by Dow Jones that Saudi Arabia is in active talks with Beijing to price some of its oil sales to China in the Chinese one. So that's a significant shift, isn't it, uh, Al? Uh, yep, um, a major one. Um, look. <clears throat> uh, in brief, basically what happened was the dollar became dominant at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 when the 30-some uh, uh, the nations meeting there agreed that the international economy would be based on a, a, a fixed ratio of convertibility of, of dollars to gold and that basically the dollar became formalized as the global reserve currency. In 1971, uh, we could no longer service the demand on the, on the dollar and the convertibility to gold. And Richard Nixon just announced unilaterally, sorry about it, world, but we'll be no longer doing conversion. You know, you can trade in dollars, but we won't be converting them to gold anymore. Uh, and the, the major success in Nixon's strategy of just making the world system accept the dollar's paper value as equivalent to gold, you know, absolutely equivalent to gold bars, uh, was when the oil exporting nations announced that they would uh, continue to uh, accept dollars for oil, that they would want to do their oil transaction in dollars, no other currency. And so that's, you know, that's been critical to holding up the dollar because when you think about it in the modern world, the, the most traded commodity are gas and oil, petroleum products. And so if that trade is uh, done in dollars, that means that the world economy is going to be operating in dollars. That's, that's a, a kind of, you know, I talked about the the formal IMF basket of currencies. Then I talked about the financial system. And then I suppose you have to say there's a, you know, for just rough and ready analysis, a third tier, which is how the world's trade is conducted. 
And the most critical part of that, the most convertible part of that is, is, is oil and petroleum products. And as one of the dominant leaders of OPEC and one of the major uh, petroleum exporters, if the Soviet Union is going to switch from doing its deals in dollars to doing it in Chinese currency, well, that's the beginning of the end of the dollar as the world's global reserve currency. So just in closing then, Alfred McCoy, do you see any chance then of, you know, we talked largely about geopolitics, but what about human rights? What about democracy? What about the rule of law? What about the nature of the post-Cold War political environment where the real struggles are not about ideology anymore, they're about democracy and the rule of law versus kleptocracy and autocracy. Is that likely to change the equation, the geographic equation? In other words, is democracy going to win or autocracy going to win? That's that's the big question. That's the one I pose in my in my book that you mentioned to govern the globe. Look, I, I, from all of what we're saying is, um, although the United States may get some medium-term gains, the strengthening of NATO and the rest from this this this, this miserable invasion of Ukraine by Russia, uh, you, you track the long-term trajectories of power, China's growing economy, its expanding military, all the rest. And you can make an argument that by the end of this decade, 2030, the uh, U.S. is the world's dominant superpower. That's over. The real question is, what about the liberal world order of human rights and rule of law that the United States created, that's embodied in, let's say, the United Nations, the World Trade Organization, all the rest, all the rest of these, the complex international organizations. That, that apparatus of the liberal world order, which the United States created, at the end of World War II in 1945, will that be able to survive this transition to Chinese-Russian hegemony that's likely to replace the U.S. world order? And that's a very open question because China's made it very clear that it, it, it doesn't have the same commitment to the rule of law, or certainly to the same understanding of human rights that um, the dominant Western powers have had since the UN was established in 1945. So that liberal world order is definitely going to be at risk in this major imperial transition that we're facing by the end of this decade. Well, Alfred McCoy, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Alfred McCoy, who holds a Harrington Chair in History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the author of Policing America's Empire, The United States, the Philippines, and the Rise of the Surveillance State, and In the Shadows of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power. His latest book is To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. And he has an article at Tom Dispatch, Geopolitics and the Ukraine War in a World on Fire, and another at The Nation, Russia and China Together at Last. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. 
Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me An angel song about the home of the brave in this land here Oh